when you look at Coinbase's uh, financials, 84% of the revenue is concentrated in the United States, when in reality, when we look at crypto markets, 85% plus of trading volume happens outside of U.S. borders. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey, Jack. Hey, Ryan. How's it going? How are you? Doing well. There's only two of us today, Jack. I know, it's, it's pretty lonely. I think Parth and Jason are off having fun, doing whatever it is that they do in their free time. <laughs> How was your weekend? My weekend was pretty good. I'm excited to do some traveling over the next two weeks. I think you're headed down to, to Austin for consensus as well this week. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you down there. Um, it'll be really interesting to see you know, what the, what the sentiment is like, right? It's one of the largest gatherings of the, you know, the industry at large over the course of the year. And and it's certainly one of the largest events since, um, we've entered into, you know, a bear market, right? I think a lot, you know, has changed since last year, the slate has changed significantly. And some of the people are in jail. Some of them are no longer in the industry. Some of them have are no longer with the companies that they were representing. Like so much has really changed in the last year. Yeah, it'll, it, it'll be one of those good opportunities to get sort of like a read on overall sentiment within the industry. Yeah. I think it was definitely different 12 months ago, um, but I can't put my finger on it uh, quite this moment without you know being in person at a large conference, which it's been a, a few months for me. Yeah, it's just, it'll be exciting. It's uh, it's good to see everyone. This is one of the the only events of the year that you have most people from the industry from different walks of life all in one place. So it's it's a really unique in that sense. Yep. All right. So you know I, we have quite a bit to cover today. We're going to start by talking um, a bit about um, Coinbase uh, getting you know new licensing in Bermuda and kind of what that means for their for their business. Um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about um, a MakerDAO governance uh, vote that uh, was held last week to um, allocate um, about $500 million in USC, USDC to uh, Coinbase custody. Um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about MEV um, and some of the behaviors around MEV that we've been seeing lately. Um, and so I think let's just jump right in. Um, do you mind just providing an overview of, um, of the Coinbase story last week? Yeah, definitely. So last week... I think it was Wednesday, April 19th, we saw a, a blog post from Coinbase as well as a few media headlines uh, in the block and a few other uh, crypto uh, reporting outlets talking about the fact that Coinbase is launching a derivatives exchange for international customers. Uh, and, and some of the details around it include that they got licensing uh, that I believe was approved 
as of last week by the Bermuda Monetary Authorities uh, to be able to offer a, a derivatives exchange that will include uh, perpetual derivatives, which are are the the most popular derivatives on exchanges like Binance that a lot of like leverage trading happens on. Uh, and then there, there's sort of reports around this that it could be launched as soon as like a week from now. So very imminent. And I think ultimately, like I'm looking at this conversation, I see sort of two stories going on here. Um, one of them around Coinbase has more to do with like sort of the regulatory landscape in the United States and maybe some sense of like frustration. I don't want to suspect too much, but you can kind of see it um, with some of the things that they've said publicly. Uh, and and Coinbase sort of stated earlier, was at some point in the first quarter of this year, there was an 8K filing uh, that they had announced they received a Wells notice from the SEC. Uh, and and you know, there's just been regulatory scrutiny around stablecoins, around staking in the United States. We saw Kraken settlement. Um, and, and when you look at Coinbase's uh, financials, 84% of the revenue is concentrated in the United States. When in reality, when we look at crypto markets, you know, 85% plus of trading volume happens outside of US borders. We know Binance being you know, by far the largest exchange. And so I think there's this element of companies, crypto companies that are looking to grow you know, you can grow sort of uh, or organically inside of the, the country that, you know, maybe you're based out of primarily and build sort of an expansive uh, list of products and services. Or you can choose to sort of grow your user base, uh, potentially through new products and services like this, uh, outside of your own borders to, to sort of new customers that you haven't served before. And we're seeing sort of the latter taking place here. And I, I do think it's fair to suspect some of it has to do with the regulatory environment. It's just yeah. potentially easier not to have to deal with that uh, and to, to push for sort of some of these maybe unexplored territories for you know, a U.S.-based company. Right. Now, I, I, I think that assessment is right. And if you take a step back and you think about kind of the crypto landscape um, in the United States, specifically Coinbase, you know, has always really been, you know, one of the market incumbents. Right. And, and they're obviously publicly listed. Right. And so from their perspective, when you think about kind of diversifying their business and hedging against any potential risks, I think it certainly makes sense. Right. That they're that they're looking at opportunities internationally, um, kind of while this while, while we're in flux, right, in the United States around kind of all of these different, um, you know, potential regulations or enforcement actions coming down the down the pike, at the end of the day, they have shareholders, right? And they need to be able to prove that they're consistently growing their business. And so it does make sense for them to look to do so, I think so, at least, in markets where there may be a little bit more clarity in terms of the rules of the road. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's a second piece to this, I think, as well. And the second piece has to relate to sort of the end of last year. We saw FTX's failure, depending on the source, second, third largest exchange, right, FTX International. And then for, for a period of time, what we saw was Binance's share sort of, of, of trading volume kind of ate up what FTX had owned in the market. And so Binance, which was already you know, 50, 55% of trading volume, became something more like 60, 65% of trading volume, continuing to grow larger. Um, and again, international share of total trading volume is far larger than US only. And so while, while Coinbase, I believe, is the, the largest crypto exchange in the United States, 
if you look at it on a global basis, it's a very small fraction of overall trading. Um, and, and there was this sort of element of Binance continue, continuing to grow larger in international waters. Now, over the f- course of sort of the first quarter, we saw a number of different regulatory issues, whether that be the SEC and the NYDFS going after the BUSD stablecoin, right? Binance's stablecoin that's issued with Paxos. Uh, there were a couple of other things, um, the CFTC's filing against Binance. Uh, and then as a result of some of the stablecoin issues, that Binance faced, they then shifted the way that their their fees work on their exchange, where before you could trade against the BUSD stablecoin with no fees on their spot and derivatives trading for large liquid assets. I know Bitcoin, ETH, and BNB. I don't know if there are other assets covered there as well. And so what mm-hmm. you would see is large trading volumes because there was very low frictional costs both lots of liquidity, which reduces you know, actual trading frictional costs, and then no actual fees. And we saw right. what, you know, what no fees did in the United States for brokerage firms, right? Once Robinhood had, had come into the industry and sort of the entire industry moved to no fee trading. And then we saw retail you know, push uh, trading individual equities like had never been done before because you lower those frictional costs. The same thing happened with Binance as they moved to a no fee model trading against this BUSD stablecoin. And where were they making revenue uh, through this? It was largely if you're holding cash, you're holding BUSD and there's value accruing to uh, the back end of, of BUSD as a stablecoin issuer, uh, Binance and Paxos. Um, but now that we've seen this shift, what they've done is they removed that fee model recently. It was think only a month or two ago, right? After some of these regulatory actions around the stablecoin, where Paxos announced that they would only be redeeming, not minting new BUSD, Binance sort of had to pivot on, on their stablecoin implementation and how they're you know, sort of managing cash. Um, and, and they moved to, I believe, offering no fee trading against a different stablecoin, TUSD, if I'm not right. mistaken. Um, but it's a small, much smaller stablecoin, a lot less liquid. And so what we've had happen, actually, which is quite interesting, is over the past month, we've seen this shift in, in particular, derivatives volume shifting around the market and maybe being some opportunity there for other players. And now, of course, Coinbase coming into the space. We noted like there was this 20% uptick in volume for up bit. I think there's just maybe some potential here for different exchanges to get into, in particular, derivatives trading, because that's where a lot of the volume comes from, um, and sort of shake up the market from being really one single player in Binance to Coinbase entering this space and some other startups as well. Well, yeah, and it would seem, it would certainly seem, you know, internationally that there's an appetite for this, right? So again, when you think about logical areas to expand outside of the U.S., um, it's, I guess it's, it isn't really surprising that this is, this, this is what they're prioritizing. Which I think from an industry perspective would be good to see uh, a breakup of really what at the moment looks like kind of a monopoly on, on crypto trading, on centralized exchanges of, right. of Binance, right? I mean, it's yeah. more than 50% of the market share on most days. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch kind of, you know, this development as well as any other expansion that they have outside of the, the U.S., 
Um, but I guess another Coinbase adjacent story. Um, so MakerDAO last week um, held actually two governance votes. Basically, the first was to onboard Coinbase custody as a new uh, real world asset vault type. Um, and then the second um, was, you know, if, if the first passed, you know, how should Coinbase custody hold um, the assets that were deposited uh, in custody Um by maker um, into the into the structure. So the the first passed with a yes vote by eighty four percent, no voting sixteen. Um, and then w- when we think about the the custody type, um, cold storage uh, one one as well with seventy five percent voting for that, fourteen percent abstained, and nine um, percent um, voted for hot storage. Um, and effectively, you know, we've seen a lot, uh, you know, or, or at least a number of different instances of um, maker pushing into RWAs or real world assets. Um, I think we covered the story or, or late last year um, with them doing a fairly large um, treasury purchase. Um, but effectively, um, the, the the Dow creates a new vault, um, sets a debt ceiling on that vault. So in this case, it'll be 500 million DAI. Um, and, and there's kind of a couple steps that happen, right? So initially, um, they issue new DAI, um, and then they'll uh, redeem those DAI against USDC, and then transfer that USDC um, into um, Coinbase Custody International. Um, And once it's there, um, the maker expects uh, that it'll yield about 2.6% APY calculated on a monthly basis. Um, And this is intended to be for for roughly a year or until um, a quote unquote self-custody solution um, is ready, right? And so I think there's a couple of things, other things that are, are notable here. So the first is that there there won't be any um, custody fee associated um, with participation in the rewards program or for the custody of the USDC itself. Um, and the second, um, which is obviously something we've talked a lot about, a lot about, um, is that Coinbase won't be allowed um, to lend, pledge, hypothecate, or rehypothecate um, these funds. Um, and so it's just worth calling out because as we know, one of the key revenue drivers for these exchanges, as well as the means by which they're able to, in some cases, pay the rewards to clients is by rehypothecating the assets or lending them out on the back end. They receive interest for doing so, and then the, you know they, they pass some of that interest back to the depositors on the exchange. I know, Jack, you had something that you wanted to call out here. Yeah, so I mean, maybe just to, to step back, in case anybody that's listening isn't too familiar, we do tend to talk about Maker and, and Die quite a bit, but really like the basis of it, what is the Maker DAO, Maker Die protocol? Ultimately, it's what we call a, a CDP collateralized debt position. Uh, and, and really what it does is creates this stablecoin called Die by taking in a collateral type to back that dollar value. And then it has kind of liquidation engines to make sure that essentially one die is always redeemable for $1 worth of some type of collateral. Originally, when Maker was launched, it was Ethereum only. And so you would provide, say, $150 worth of Ethereum, and you would get $100 worth of die that was redeemable back for you know, your original uh, position that you used to collateralize the debt position. And so what you're doing is effectively minting a synthetic type of dollar in some sense, which is becomes the die stable coin that you can then go and use throughout the ecosystem. And then right. they created multi uh, collateral types and using stable coins added some level of stability to 
the maker protocol because then you had stable coins that were collateral so you could swap DAI directly on a one-to-one basis. And so what Ryan really is ultimately referring to here with this Coinbase incentivization scheme essentially is uh, the ability to use these stable coins that are providing a yield for the issuer. So in Gemini, Paxos, or Coinbase and Circle's case with USDC, they're incentivizing Maker to hold their stablecoin and then sort of, in effect, passing on a portion of the yield that, that they're receiving that underlies uh, the actual stablecoin. And so now with this you know, most recent push by, by Coinbase for you know, another $500 million PSM, we're sort of continuing to see Maker move into this realm of relying or working with uh, CFI or, or centralized regulated providers. And it's interesting to just see this sort of direction where you get scale if you play the sort of regulatory friendly angle. You can get sort of scale and profitability because now they're getting uh, on this deal, you know, 2.6% of $500 million. That's real money to pay developers uh, of the right. maker protocol or to pass on to die holders through what's called the die savings rate. And so there's sort of that one angle that the, the protocol continues to go in. Well, at the end of the day, they're really just trying to generate yield right? yeah. on these reserve funds. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And But yet, like sort of the founding principles of Maker originally, at least from my understanding, was more so around ultimately creating a decentralized digital dollar. Um, but they're sort of moving in the opposite direction to some degree. Yeah. And I think in theory, the, the vision is eventually you can scale and be more profitable and then swerve back to the original intentions at the end of the day. That's like the the end game or, or the ultimate game plan. Um, but I, I just kind of have questions because at the same time, the regulatory environment in the U.S. and globally seems to be sort of ramping up and decentralized or the word algorithmic, even though DAI is collateralized, it's not the same as what Luna was, um, but there are risks with any algorithmic stablecoin. I just think it's like the timing is interesting. As the yeah. regulatory environment heats up, there's going to be more talk of these stablecoins. And there is, uh, even in the, the recent stablecoin bill um, that, that hasn't, I don't think, officially been proposed or anything to be voted on. Um, it doesn't seem like it, it will be uh, at the moment. Um, but there's like sort of explicit call outs uh, around algorithmic stablecoins of which DAI would fall under uh, of sort of not being regulatory compliant. And yet they're sort of deepening partnerships with centralized entities. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that obviously introduced a whole set of considerations for those entities. But I think to your point, there are, you know, at the DAO level, right, there's there's some real risks associated with the centralization as well. I think like what interests me probably the most, you know, outside of all of that is just kind of how MakerDAO has executed on all of this, right? Because they have these, they've had, you know, a whole series of, of governance votes to support this activity and kind of what sits behind it are, you know, a series of trusts that have been set up and agents, you know, acting on behalf of the trusts, right? And so there's, there's a, a pretty significant level of sophistication associated with a DAO reaching into the real world, right? And interfacing with, you know, real world companies to buy real world assets. We've obviously talked a lot about DAO governance and kind of how you can achieve consensus. And I think like Maker has actually done a fairly good job at kind of propelling the project forward and not necessarily getting mired up in some of the governance related things that some of the other large DAOs have. 
Yeah, definitely. And then the one thing that you end up with, though, when you start to intersect, and this is going to be a theme over the next like five or 10 years, is when you start to intersect the, the digitally native world of like Bitcoin and Ethereum and then putting composable assets on top of Ethereum with real world assets, like MakerDAO's claims on U.S. Treasury debt because they, right, they, they own $500 million worth of it uh, through right. a, a third party that was helping them do it. Like there is real contract law. There is the real like United States government that those claims are, are technically owed to Maker. Uh, but now you're, you're starting to intersect the, the digital world that's decentralized, that's permissionless to the permissioned world of contract law and lawyers and right in real governments, right? And so it's just like, it'll be really interesting to see where that plays as we move forward. Um, yeah. It, yeah, because I think like one of the long-term, you know, one of the long-term visions for DAOs is is to be able to have decentralized governance, right? And, and a variety of different organizations doing a variety of different things. And I think to yeah. date, like it's largely been kind of in the crypto ecosystem and has not reached very far beyond that. And that's why I think this is so interesting is because I do think that, they are forging, you know, a path here, right? And whether, you know, whether there's questions about the viability of that path and, you know, there's certainly risks, which they they have certainly outlined in a lot of the legal assessments that they've done around these things, um, they continue to get the votes to be able to move it forward from, from maker, you know, token holders. So um, yep. certainly something that'll be interesting to to watch as it as they push further and further along. Absolutely. And, and one more thing uh, while we're maybe on this topic, if we look at, for a lot of these lending protocols, but Maker in particular, because of their design of, of being this collateralized uh, debt position, uh, where they're sitting on a lot of Ethereum. I think if we, we sort of uh, combine some of the stuff we've been talking about around the Shanghai upgrades uh, with Maker uh, looking for sort of yield from real world assets, I think we're going to start to see some of these DeFi protocols like uh, maker and the lending platforms take advantage of the fact that ETH can now be a yield bearing asset. And that's sort of one of two ways. The simple way is to own liquid staking derivatives as the proxy for Ethereum. Um, and that would essentially, you know, if they, if they held Steeth instead of ETH or our ETH, Rocket Pools, uh, our ETH instead of ETH, they would benefit from the, you know, the four or five percent yields. And that would be value that accrues down to the maker protocol in some form or fashion. I think we're yeah. going to start to see that now that we're past Shanghai. Um, or the the other option would be to, to create some sort of a competitor. And I don't know the exact mechanics you would do it here, um, but for them to create their own liquid staking derivative protocols uh, of their own ETH because they have huge stockpiles of it. Um, right. I don't know that we'll see too many go in that direction. Frax has gone in that direction. Uh, that's a longer conversation. But I do think that we're going to start to see this dormant Ethereum sitting in these lending protocols uh, start to be represented by liquid staking derivatives just because it's more efficient for either the borrower whose collateral it is or for the protocol who's sitting on all of this Ethereum. You might as well earn a yield on it, uh, assuming you can sort of create a, an environment where you're not adding a bunch of risk into the protocol. Yeah. Any thoughts on why perhaps they've prioritized treasuries and stable coins over staking ETH? Other than, I mean, I guess the obviously the obvious liquidity risk. Yeah, up until now, probably the more the liquidity risk. Um, right. And then the other one was 
even just up until like a year ago, it didn't really matter if you were sitting on USDC versus holding treasuries like a year and a half ago, because it was, we were talking about 25 basis points, right? It was like more or less de minimis. But now that we're talking about, you know, Fed funds rate, that's 5%. That's real money on a billion dollars, right? That's 50 million. I'm sure there'll be more on this. And we've said that every time we cover, <laughs> we cover these stories, but you know, it certainly seems like there's a pretty robust roadmap. And so we'll, we'll certainly continue to monitor it. Yep. Um, all right. So let, let's move on to our final story for this segment. Yeah. So I guess we'll end on, on kind of a meme type story that I guess ties into uh, a more like serious or tangible well, topic. I was just going to say profit generating meme. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, so uh, Ryan is alluding to uh, this uh, ENS, uh, Ethereum uh, naming service name uh, for an address. The wallet was named uh, Jared from Subway.eth. And the, the sort of irony here is that Jared from Subway.eth uh, was uh, an MEV bot and they were making money by sandwich attacking. Uh, and, and they were making headlines last week uh, for making millions of dollars. I mean, on, on one single day, they made $1.12 million on Wednesday, April 19th, over a single 24-hour period. Uh, and they accounted for 7% of gas uh, on the network over that period. And what ultimately, what is MEV and what is MEV extraction? We can talk a little bit about that uh, with the time we have left here, but ultimately MEV, maximal extractable value, uh, it's ultimately a, a feature or you could call it like an externality that's inherent with in particular a lot of these smart contract platforms like Ethereum or any of the sort of EVM compatible chains as well uh, sort of have this, this issue or I, I call it more like an externality that exists, just kind of an unintended consequence, which basically comes from uh, the ordering or inclusion or exclusion or shuffling of transactions from validators or block builders that are able to sort of take advantage of the fact that they're building the next block. And there are all of these different protocols with different assets that are priced at different prices. Uh, and, and what you ultimately have happening is a few different types of extractable value that exists. And so mm. a, a few like simple scenarios of what MEV looks like. You can have just pure arbitrage of MEV where, say, there's Uniswap, the DEX, and there's SushiSwap, the DEX. And if they're both pricing uh, some token at a different price, then you can sort of back back out the math of how much of that you can trade, how much profit there is, and what's the gas going to cost in order to include that transaction. Um, and, and so, you know, you have pure arbitrage, you have these sandwich attacks, which Jared from Subway.eth was doing, uh, which is basically knowing, uh, if you know the transaction that's going to take place, that somebody wants to trade for an asset, well, they're going to have some sort of a, I will buy it up until this point, kind of like a limit order. We call it like a slippage tolerance on a, on a trade across one of these uh, decentralized exchanges like Uniswap. And you mm -hmm. can sandwich attack them by sort of front running them and buying the asset and then knowing what their slippage threshold is, being able to take advantage of that uh, by, by making multiple trades around their single singular trade. Uh, and then there's other types of MEV, uh, like liquidation, where you can you can know the price point that somebody's going to get liquidated at on Aave, and you can take advantage of that. 
And there's a couple of different entities that are involved in this. In theory, like validators are the ones that are extracting the MEV because they're the ones that are building blocks. But there's also these independent participants that we call searchers. And that's what this Jared from subway.eth was. And, and these are like users that are running complex algorithms to try to detect these like market discrepancies or MEV opportunities. And in order to be able to get their transactions included into blocks, they're willing to pay large gas fees. And so then you have all of these different uh, benefits and ultimately externalities or, or harm that is caused as a result of you know, folks like these searchers that are mm -hmm. looking for arbitrages and then paying a bunch of money to get included into a block. And you can see how that could drive the price of transactions up. And for an ETH token holder that's just sitting on their Ethereum, great, you're going to burn more ETH because there's more demand for transactions. But for a user or for the, the specific user of that application, like for instance, the person that's making that trade that's getting exploited by the sandwich attack, they're paying a worse execution or like a, a higher cost to actually make their trade. And there is harm, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I think it's and, worth noting, like, the, you know, of the different flavors, the legality, I think, is maybe looks different from you just your general, you know, ARB across different, you know, exchanges versus like what really is in essence front running, right? Yeah, essentially. Um, ultimately, if you were to like boil it down, the winners of MEV are the validators themselves and the searchers, right? Because there's this additional revenue stream. And then also to some degree, the protocols on these platforms kind of benefit because there's this these arbitrages that exist create some level of like efficiency when MEV is taken advantage of, then you get like harmony across these protocols where they're all going to be priced very similar because the arbitrage will be taken advantage of by the, the next validator that's building a block if it's a large enough arbitrage that it makes sense. But at the same time, there are like individual users that have to pay higher gas fees or are exploited by you know by a, a protocol because they don't know any better. Um, not directly exploited, like losing their money, but they're they're getting a worse experience essentially. And so I think yeah. as we move forward, this is a conversation that we're going to hear more about. Um, there are different solutions that are being proposed. Well, and the Ethereum Foundation has acknowledged that this is an issue, right? The, cent the centralization of entities that have the technical capabilities to be able to basically do this, right? Yep. Yeah, exactly. Versus just versus like the rel relatively low threshold of being able to run a validator on Ethereum. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think this is really interesting. Obviously, like you, I think, did a really nice job summarizing. To me, it doesn't seem, you know, terribly sustainable. You know, I think when, when you zoom way out, we've obviously spoken a lot about institutional adoption of crypto, institutional adoption of, in DeFi, like this is this to me, and this is my opinion, is is a flavor in a lot of senses of mar market manipulation, and like there's some red flags associated with you know that, and you know institutions getting more and more involved in this space, and I, I do think that we probably will pretty soon need a technical solution to make sure that um, you know validators are able to extract the maximum amount of value, but also you know that it isn't harming individual users kind of in the process. Yeah, absolutely. We, I was actually talking uh, internally with another analyst on on my team uh, about some of this, and you almost get sort of uh, 
analogies that directly tie into traditional markets where if you've ever read the book Flash Boys that talks about basically the closer you are to literal exchanges, like the quicker you can get your transaction through and, and sort of the better pricing you can get if you're like a market maker. You kind of have these same things happening with uh, these validators themselves where many of them are waiting. Like if you have 12 seconds to submit your block, you're going to wait until 11 and a half seconds or as far as you can because then you want to you want to ensure that you can get the best possible block that you can and extract all of the MEV that's available. Uh, and so you're starting to see like some of these things that affect traditional markets affecting crypto markets, but even more so because it's just still everything's very nascent and we're still working through the kinks of a lot of these issues. Catching up. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hey, I think we did pretty good considering there's only two of us this week. <laughs> but certainly a lot to cover. So look forward to seeing you uh, at Consensus this week and um, certainly come back with a, an update and what we saw next week. And we'll have uh, Parth and Jason back. So thanks everyone for joining this week and uh, we'll see you all later. Thanks. Have a great rest of your week. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023. FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.